Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Callum, Robert, Matthew, Jay, Paul, Tavernot, Carol, Benjamin, Fernando, Justin, Matthew, and Joaquin. Thanks a ton for supporting the show and making this all possible. If you'd like to help support the show, consider joining my Patreon, tipping me on PayPal or Ko-fi, or by buying something for your own game groups from some of my amazing affiliate links. You can find all those affiliate links in my link tree or in the episode show notes. Also, here's a reminder to check out Diversity Saves. If you'd like to help support diverse creators trying to get their first TTRPG projects off the ground, it's a great place to start. And now, onto this episode's guest intro. Kaya is a game designer who got her start with a game jam and has been churning out creative and interesting games ever since. Her background in LARPing and language means she has some interesting perspectives on what makes TTRPGs fun and engaging. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Kaya. I'm known as Mirrorlock, or the Warlock of Many Faces, on social media. Some may also know me as Lillison from the Curse of Strahd Twice Bitten podcast, and I'm really happy to be here. It's been quite a while since I've thought about how I very first got into D&D, because it's just been a part of my life for so long. I got into it back in 2003. Three, the person I was dating in high school at the time was just responsible for getting me into so many of the nerdy, geeky hobbies and interests that I have nowadays. They introduced me to Magic the Gathering, to World of Warcraft, and in the back of the game store that we went to for Friday Night Magic, there was just a giant table of maybe 20 people playing D&D. Looking back on it now, I have absolutely no idea how that DM managed to keep control of a table that All day. one game. Yeah. All wow. one game, yes. Oh, man. But I was interested, and so were some of the other friends in our little social group. And so they had a little more experience than me. They guided me through character creation I made an absolutely not optimized ranger in 3.5 as my first character ever. And then I kind of stopped because we graduated from high school. And by then, fourth edition was coming out. And I had made a few friends in college who tried it out. We played a 4E campaign, but it wasn't really catching on or anything like that. But when the fifth edition playtest came out, the people that I was playing World of Warcraft with by that time wanted to try it out. They had been running a second edition game for like 20 years by then, actually. So we tried it out, and I actually introduced my now husband to the game, and it was kind of nice. It was this thing that we did with our friends, and I didn't really think that it would be more than that. I was invited to spectate the online game that one of my internet friends was in and was absolutely raving about. And up until then, I had only ever been playing in person. This online game was so full of just fun and a lot of passion that people were bringing to the game. 
they were doing this not as the thing that the real life friends were doing while they were hanging out that could just be replaced by watching a movie or playing a board game. No, these people were here because they really wanted to be here. They were so invested in their characters. They were so captivated and thrilled by every plot hook the DM was throwing out there. And after the first session that I spectated, I just went to the DM in private messages and said, hey, I understand that you already have seven people at this table, but if you ever want to have an eighth player, I am absolutely interested. And to my surprise, she said, yeah, let's uh, set up a time and make you a character and figure out how your character can ease into this game and what kind of connections they can have. That DM has since said, I will never run for eight players again. So <laughs> I'm extremely grateful that uh, she took a chance on me. Having done games for like eight or nine people once, I wouldn't do it again. Some people love it. Some people thrive on it. I'm not convinced that the players enjoy it as much as you think they do because they just get so much less time to do stuff and to shine, right? That's a debate for a different time, but I'm with that DM and it's tough to run that many players at one time. Good thing that they gave you a shot, right? Yeah. How did you get into running games yourself then? What kind of gave you that push or what was um, the catalyst to making you decide that you wanted to try it out? In 2019, there were a few home games that I was in with a couple of my local friends that were kind of trailing off because all my local friends were starting to have kids. And it's really hard to even predict your scheduling once you have kids. I'm sure you know. <laughs> yes, I do. So at that time, I started thinking, well, what if I pulled together an online table with some of the friends that I had met through that online game that I was in where everybody was so happy to be there and a couple of my local friends and, huh, I could just run Curse of Strahd on Roll20 where they have the entire module all set up already, all the maps, the entire text of the game. I can just do this myself. It's already there. It'll be so easy. Well, I'm sure you understand that those are sort of famous last words of DMs, or in my case, the famous first words, because from there, it was a very short journey into discovering the Curse of Strahd modification community, which is so sprawling and so complex. I know that you had Dragnacarta on as a guest a little while ago. His guides and Mandy Mod's guides are giants in that particular field. I followed a lot of Mandy Mod's modifications. I also just asked my players what they wanted out of their game, the sort of emotional arc they wanted. And then I took the backstories that they gave me and I just put in all sorts of secret hooks into the backstory of Curse of Strahd. Just absolutely eviscerated 60% of the content and replaced it with things that I knew would really get my players when they finally came across them. That's awesome. And yeah, Dragno, it was a lot of fun to chat with him. And it's interesting that Twice Bitten was an attempt at doing completely rules as written, given his proclivity for modification and the rest of you all having run Curse of Strahd before and having knowledge of it. And I'm sure doing lots of modifications yourselves, right? Like you said, you did it a lot. 
that's a good introduction. Who knows how long people will be able to just find modules all ready and loaded on VTTs. Those days could be numbered at this point, but I could see how it'd be a lot less daunting if you know, I don't have to make any maps or go find maps. There's just a lot less of the kind of nitty gritty technical prep that you would have to do if it was all ready for you. So that's great and a very easy gateway to kind of get started for people who are wanting to run it online. You're also big into the live action role play or LARP scene. So how did you get into that? And then also, what do you feel like are the big similarities and differences between running LARPs, writing LARPs, and running traditional tabletop games? I want to start out first by just clarifying when people say LARP, there are two very different types of activities they could be referring to. The thing that most people think of immediately is people running around the woods, whacking each other with foam sticks or throwing spell packets at each other. And I have the utmost respect for those people. They are fit. They are swinging swords around, running around eight hours every weekend sometimes. They have more physical stamina than most of the people who are turning up their noses at them. That is not the LARPing that I do. The sort of LARPing that I do is called theater LARPing or parlor LARPing. And that is primarily an activity where in my very specific sort of LARPing tradition, you get character sheets that describe your psychology, describe the things you know, describe the secrets you know, describe the powers that you have, describe your goals. And then you are let loose into an area with anywhere between two other people to 20 other people, or even more sometimes. And all of you just sort of go forth and mingle, talk to each other, try to figure things out, try to strike deals. And it's a lot of fun sometimes. And sometimes it can also be emotionally devastating. Sometimes it's both at once. So The way that I got into LARPing was I was visiting a friend at college, and she had been signed up for this LARP. It was a large one. It was, I think, 24 player. And the thing about these LARPs is they're so tightly written with who knows what and who has which items that somebody else wants and who has the power that will be able to combine three things into the thing that will solve the game's general problem, that you really need everybody to be there. You really need all of these pre-written characters to have somebody there playing. And there was one person who had signed up and discovered that she couldn't make it that day. And so they were coming to me and begging me and going like, oh, you're in town. (laughs) Is there any chance at all that you're willing to try this? And I was thinking, well, this sounds kind of weird, but the friend that I came to visit is going to be busy doing this all day anyway, so I guess I'll give it a try. And it was so much fun. It was just this experience of being able to step out of my own life for a while, which at the time, things weren't really going great for me. And I was able to step into this fictional student's life where everything was going so much worse. And then I was able to do something about that. That's the sort of thing that people play all sorts of games for. I think it's the core of why we want to roleplay. Yeah, totally. And I like to compare it to like those murder mystery parties that are kind of popular around, I don't know, I guess this time of year when it's darker and colder, but like on steroids. 
it's a full day commitment oftentimes. I've heard of people doing like whole weekends where the whole weekend you're all playing characters. There's definitely more and less involved styles of them. But yeah, I haven't participated myself, but I have a lot of respect for people who put that much time and effort into it. You called it theater LARPing or parlor LARPing. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of mental fortitude to step into a person's shoes for that amount of time and stay in character like that. Even actors get breaks and stuff. It's a lot of work and it's impressive. It has also really informed the way that I think about role-playing for D&D. Because for D&D, you sort of go in thinking, all right, I have this character that I'm sort of puppeteering to follow whatever goals it is that the DM puts in front of me. But in theater LARPing, the writers wrote these characters and then they step away. At runtime, there may be GMs, but they're sort of off to one side. They're there if you have managed to collect all four pieces of the MacGuffin and you turn in those index cards and they give you a new index card. They're not there saying like, all right, here's what you see. All right, what do you want to do? That sort of thing. And so all of the characters that you're given that you go in with have to be psychologically complete on their own. And thinking about the way that those characters are built and written, what they want what might be the conflicts between two different things that they want, foreseeing the sort of arguments that might come up between characters. That's a lot of thinking about character psychology that I've been able to bring over to when DMing NPCs. That's been really handy. Yeah, cool. So talking about running games and that kind of thing, what are some big mistakes that you feel like you have made from games that you've run and maybe lessons that you learned that you could pass on to the rest of us? Examples of how not to DM. I have thought a lot about how to, like I said, bring in character psychology, round out NPCs, things like that. I do not have a lot of experience with mechanical balancing. And that's a problem. So my first campaign, I was running Curse of Strahd for my friends. And for the majority of the campaign, it was emotional kind of journey rather than a very crunchy and combat heavy sort of thing. They were uncovering mysteries. They were making friends. They were making up with old allies that they thought had betrayed them, all sorts of things. And then they got to Strahd's castle. And I had been reading all these different guides to making Strahd be a very difficult fight. And I was all prepared. I had all sorts of side encounters and ambushes prepared and planned. And I dropped that on my players. And they were absolutely gobsmacked. They were not prepared for that. It was just a completely different experience than they had been led to believe all throughout this campaign they were getting into. And they weren't thinking, oh, we're going to go into this and have to be super tactical or anything like that. That was my first mistake. When they pointed that out to me during our break, I was a little crestfallen and I was maybe a little angry because I had put so much thought and energy in preparing this. And I said, yeah you guys are right. This is a little overtuned for what I had been leading you to expect up until now. So my second mistake was the way that I compensated for that was I made some of the secondary 
enemies just absolutely tactically useless. The big, scary second-in-command who had been polymorphed into a gorilla and had been wailing on people with multi-attack just before the session break, now just sort of spider-climbed down to the bottom of the tower and just chucked rocks at them with disadvantage the whole time. And that is basically the most obvious kind of patch job that you can do, (laughs) and my players felt condescended to. So... Thinking back on it now, something that I would rather do is approach the situation with an idea of, okay, I have to rebalance this somehow. How can I do that and also serve a narrative function at the same time? I could have maybe a cutscene where this secondary antagonist, this mysterious dark force that the PCs know that they're going to have to face after this battle. I could have a shadow sweep through the hall that makes even Strahd tremble for a moment. And when it passes, this lieutenant is withered on the ground and there is blood leading off strangely up into the air in a different direction that seems to be pointing the way to the next encounter that you're going to have after this. If I had to get rid of one of the combatants that was there... I could do so in a way that felt like it had been set up the whole time, that felt like it was revealing some kind of secret that's bringing the story forward rather than making it feel like the story has been dumped down. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's tough, right? Like you wanted to come to a satisfying end. And so you did what you thought made sense, did a bunch of research, figured out how to make it interesting and difficult. And in doing so, kind of went against the tone of your game. And I totally see how that would be an easy thing to do and kind of like fall into. That's tough, but it's a valuable lesson, right? When you've established kind of a way that you like to play and a way that your players have kind of shown you what they're most interested in engaging with, it can be tempting to try different styles and say, well, maybe they'll like this or maybe they like that. You know, I definitely do this. I experiment with stuff and I experiment with different types of stories or encounters or whatever. But yeah, it's tough to always get the balance exactly right. And especially on the last encounter, it's tough and you have no idea what it's going to be like. And it's not like you get another shot at it either, right? Right. Experimenting in the middle of a campaign with one-off sessions or things like that, that's one thing. If it flops, then just move on to the next session. There's always another session until there isn't. That's tough, but a very valuable lesson, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. It is a thing that you have done or noticed that I don't feel like other people have mentioned on the show before, so I appreciate that too. It's advice that I feel like is new and different that we maybe haven't heard before, so that's awesome. On the flip side of that, what about some good moments, some really fun moments from games that you've run? Any that come to mind that are lessons that you could share with us of how running games worked out well for you? The current campaign that I'm running is a heavily modified Tomb of Annihilation. And anybody who's ever run Tomb of Annihilation in vanilla sense knows that the game gives you this giant, lively, bustling city that's really colorful and jam-packed with things to do. And rules as written, you're going to be there for like maybe two sessions and then spend 50 sessions in the jungle. I decided you know what, I'm going to start my players somewhere else completely, and then they're going to get washed onto the continent 
they're going to have to trek through the jungle to get to the city. And then while they're there, they'll find something is going on. Something that will eventually lead them to following the actual plotline of the book and going all the way to, well, I'm not going to say to where because I'm sure that some of my players are going to hear this before our campaign actually ends. So to somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And then I just sort of kept on putting more and more political tangles in front of my players and sort of demonstrating that this is not the sort of problem that you can just go in and solve with your fists or your sword. There is this really mysterious cabal of trade princes. There is this mysterious opposition to them called the Nomisma, headed by somebody called the Viper, who has actually gotten into a scuffle with them personally and seems to have just wiped the floor with them. One of the PCs actually died. So they had quite the grudge against this person, this mysterious unknown person. Our last session before the new year, before that block of holidays that just kill all campaigns for a while, they received this invitation to meet with this leader that up until now has just been nothing but an enemy to them. And they were very nervous about this. They thought that this must definitely be a trap. But they went to the meeting place and sat down, and this person who has literally killed one of them in battle before he got better said, hey, I heard that you're working on solving the death curse. I want to work with you. They were suspicious, as you might expect, and said, how can we work with anybody who doesn't even show their face? So the Viper took down their hood, and it was Lillison the PC that I had played in Twice Bitten, and the session just closed there. So they were shrieking, and I was laughing, and they were like, all right, all right, we know out of character now that like, yes, sure, we can work with this person. Like, yes, we know that this is going to be some sort of very powerful ally, but our PCs are still half scared to death. And this past session that we just started on when we opened, they remembered exactly what had been going on from the last session a a month ago. And they had a lot of fun trying to ask questions that would be reasonable for their PCs to ask, not knowing what the answers were when they knew full well what the answers were. So (laughs) yeah, using DM NPCs is always just a very tricky and delicate sort of thing. But when you do it as a sort of inside joke that you're inviting your players to come in with you on, rather than just like plopping somebody down and saying like, look how sparkly and shiny this person is, it can be a lot of fun. That is fun. Yeah. I'm assuming all of them were familiar with the character, right? Like, oh, yeah. did you describe how they looked or did you just say it is Illicent or what? How did you do it? I changed the token that I was using on the virtual tabletop Ah, from the generic hooded figure to the artwork that they knew very well. I love fun reveals like that. And especially when you like end the session and like, boom, and that's the end. And they all go, ah, those are my favorite endings where everyone freaks out and they sit there for half an hour still talking about it and like trying to figure out what they're going to do next. Best feeling as a DM. I love it. 
For the mid-roll bit today, it's just a quick shout out to the talented people at podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Podcasteditors.online is the group that edits this podcast, and they do an awesome job, as you can hear. They also do actual play podcasts or any other kind of podcast that you may have. So take a look at their website, at their great rates, and see if you are interested in buying some editing hours a la carte. And if you tell them I sent you, you might get a little discount on your first couple of hours there of your podcast. So check that out. Videoeditors.online, also very useful if you are a YouTube creator, if you have any kind of video content, TikTok or Reels, short form, YouTube shorts, they do it all. So go check out videoeditors.online if you're a video creator and you want to take advantage of that too. So same deal if you want to mention How Not to DM sent you, I'm sure they'll hook you up with some discounted hours to start. So yeah, check those both out if you are a podcast or video creator or both. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's version of Quickfire Chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, Kaya and I are going to roll on some random D100 tables from the internet to help create a scenario to roleplay. We'll start off with the voice descriptions table. That is a 93. They sound like they are about to cry. That one is actually really easy for me. Hopefully not because of experience. It's basically my LARP archetype for 15 years running now. Distressed person. Yeah, that makes sense. Next one is the personality trait of this NPC. All right. Three. Addict, one who is addicted to a compulsive activity. Oh, no. Okay, that'll be interesting. Third table is their job or occupation. 18. A farmer. On the more vanilla side, but you get to decide what they are farming and why. So what would an addict be farming? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, DM's choice here. I've got two tables. One is city quests and one is fetch quests. So what sounds more interesting as far as like a plot hook that you are going to use to send me on? Let's say city quests. Roll it up and we'll see which quest it is going to be. 27. It has remained mysteriously cloudy above the city for the last couple of weeks, and dead birds keep dropping out of the night sky. (laughs) Oh dear. I'm just going to be a human warlock. It has been a long and arduous journey, but the sight of the city where they famously tax colors is too intriguing to pass up. As you approach the gates, the green of the grass seems to simply drain away with each step, and the sky above pales from a vivid blue down to a wispy pale gray. The colors of your own clothing remain, now appearing rather like a raucous shout against the muted grays and whites and blacks of the city. There's nobody at the gate. There's nobody in the streets. But you do hear a bit of a wail of distress 
down one of the alleyways nearby. So I've heard of this city, but I guess I don't know why it would be abandoned or so dark. This is fascinating. It's like I'm in a Frank Miller movie. I'm the only thing with color and then everything else is is black and white. I love it. I will probably go see what's going on around the corner, try to find the source of this wailing. Around the corner, you see, huddled against a little niche in the wall, a woman on the ground curled around what seems to be a broken flower pot. Hmm. And from the flower pot emerges a scraggly little brownish stem. So there is color on the stem and the flower pot. Interesting. I'll probably approach up to a respectful distance, maybe like five feet or so, and kind of stoop down and say, Excuse me, ma'am, what seems to be the matter? And also, where is everyone else? I... They... This... This city is... I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you're... Uh, oh, you're very, very colorful. Oh, that's... Well. That's a delight to see. I haven't seen color that vivid in so long. I'm sorry, can I just stare at you for a moment? You may, yes. I suppose I've been called much worse than than colorful before. (laughs) Uh, Yes, uh, this is quite puzzling. Uh, It it appears that I am not affected by whatever magic permeates the area, but also your your flower or this plant appears not to have been affected, or at least the color hasn't. Has the life been sucked out of it? Uh, Oh, oh, no. Um, they, they tax color in this city, you understand. Citizenship comes with a magical tithe of, of color to the ruling council, who dispense it as they see fit, but, but you see, I, um, I have my little secret stash, or, or at least I did. I grew flowers when, when I could. Ah, I see. Well, I shan't tell anybody if, if you won't, but... Uh, oh, oh, thank you. Please tell me, what, what has happened to this particular plant? Oh, um, well, you see, there's, um, something that's been going on for the past few days, and birds, dead birds have been dropping out of the skies, and, and one of them knocked my flower pot out of the windowsill straight to the ground, and I'm... I'm I, I don't know what I'll do now that it's dead, but... Um... But... Whatever is, is making these... These birds... Die right in the air is, has also been blotting out the sun, so... Uh, most of, of um, the able-bodied people in this city said that there must be some sort of dragon or or other sort of monster that has come to the area and they uh they formed up a a large armed party and and left last uh, week i see that would explain the lack of uh people around well i also must ask how long has this color tax been enacted has it been since you've been alive or before 
I, I don't know, I admit, the history of this town, and I worry that perhaps they have reached beyond what they knew they were capable of, and, and, and perhaps that has been part of it, but I, I don't want to, you know, speculate. I, I, I suppose I'm just shooting in the dark, as it were. But yes, what, what's the history of this tax? Well, the, uh, the tax was first enacted um, about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, I was I was just a child um, but I remember when when things were much brighter and more colorful I see uh, am I in danger being within the city walls seeing as I am not a citizen am I allowed here oh oh yes uh, okay. we, we get visitors sometimes uh, but usually the uh, the guards are quite um, uh, scary at them but I suppose. I, I suppose that's not really uh, a deterrent now. No, I waltzed right in. Uh, well, madam, may I assist you in any way? May I assist you with this flower? Can I take you from this place where we could perhaps find uh, something to help resuscitate your plants? I, I, I want to help, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, well, I mean... I, I have dreamed of uh, of leaving this place when I could, but r right now I'm more worried about where everybody is. They should have been back long before now, and certainly whatever they're trying has not worked because... And she just sort of points upwards as uh, another small bird just drops out of the air. <laughs> yes, uh, clearly you are correct in your assessment. Well, do you know which way they headed? Oh, yes, they uh, they went out the south gate of the city and towards the uh, the giant magical crevasse in the earth there. Oh, dear. Well, I guess that probably is the direction I would head as well had I known it existed. Uh, madam, I will uh, follow after them and see what has become of the remain the, 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 the citizens of this town. I hope that I can bring back good news, but I am a bit worried. Do you have somewhere safe to be? I, I mean, dead birds are not in themselves terribly dangerous, but what could follow, no one knows. I, I mean, um, there's... Uh, if, if you're looking for a, a bed for the night, I have a spare room in my house, but if you're looking for uh, more, I don't know, Dignified uh, accommodations. Uh, I, I think the um, the Golden Boar Tavern down the road should should still have a few employees. <laughs> My goodness, uh, quite the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The skeleton crew. Uh, yes, um, I think I shall head after the villagers and the the remainder of the town that went missing. Uh, I will return to you and report. And if I do not, I suppose you know that I have uh, fallen just like them. And maybe it's time to get out, if that's the case. Is there a city nearby that you know of where you could go? Any family? I just, you know, if, if it does get worse, I would hope that you could escape this place. Uh, well, I, I do have a, a second cousin in, um, in Glassforge a few days away, but that's... That would be quite the journey, but maybe it would be worth it if things get much worse here. 
Yes. Well, I shall go. Uh, as I said, I will either return or I won't. And you will either get the answer you seek or you won't. Um, but I suppose if you don't get an answer from me, you already have an answer, don't you? Uh, madam, I, I wish you the best of luck. I hope that you, the rest of your flowers are unharmed. And I will return as soon as possible to let you know what has happened to the rest of your city. Um, thank you so much. Um, luck be with you, sir. And, and with you, and with you. And uh, may your life uh, moving forward be more colorful. Oh, th thank you. I don't know if that's rude or not in this town, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Farewell. That was a very interesting idea. A town with the color text. Did you make that up on the spot or is that something from one of your games? I made that up on the spot. When I rolled addict and farmer and then in the city, there's many ways those things can combine, but I wanted to try something a little different from the obvious. Yeah. Addicted to color. I like it. <laughs> or addicted to, I don't know what else. But anyway, <laughs> that was very creative, and I thought it was awesome. You mentioned you started running games in 2019. Since then, you've been part of an actual play show, and you've done a few other things within the community. But one of the things you've done is you've started to write your own games in addition to running them in your LARPs that you're a part of. So what made you decide to get into game design, and how has it been going so far? That was almost an accident. I saw Lex Titanomaki, I think I pronounced that right, <laughs> talking about their Keltrop core system. And they were saying, it is such an easy system. Anybody can pick this up and be a game designer in 30 minutes. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a very large claim. I'm going to pick this up and look at it. And I looked at it, and I looked at some of the other Caltrop core games that people were making, and I thought to myself, yeah, I could put a bit of a skin of flavor over this and make a game, and I'm not really sure if this is for me. Then I spent a few days with this idea sort of percolating in the back of my mind. And the thing that actually gave me that spark was thinking about the mysterious hooded figure in the corner of every self-respecting tavern. <laughs> you want to know who that person is. You want to know why they're there and what they're looking for and what sort of brooding, deep backstory that they have. And if you don't, then your players do. And so you sort of have to make it up on the spot. So I thought, well, what if I take this very light and flexible system in this SRD that I just read and I made some sort of system to generate the backstory for that mysterious wanderer. And that's how my first game, Her Odyssey, really came about. I gather that most of the people who play it are treating it sort of more as a writing exercise. I tried to put in enough prompts and make them flexible enough that it could fit in any sort of setting. But at heart for me, it's really the mysterious hooded figure backstory generator. Because you're always going to need one of those eventually. Everyone does. And if you don't need one, then one of your players is going to be that. So, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, man. I loved having Lex on, I was going to say earlier this year, but it was last year technically at this point. Yeah, Lex was one of my guests, I think probably in January or February of last year. 
as that first Calchop Core game jam had finished up. It was a ton of fun to talk to them, and I feel like a lot of people, whether or not they had written something resembling a game in the past, it did enable a lot of people to kind of give it a try, and there's been people who've made a bunch of them. You've made at least two that I know of, Herodicy and Pearl and Provenance, using the Caltrop core system. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun to see what people come up with and the ways that they kind of twist it to meet their needs and kind of what kind of creative stuff they come up with. So yeah, that's a cool way to get introduced. And I feel like a lot of people kind of can say that that's where they got their start. So you've used a few um, systems like this to build your games from, and then a lot of your games are your own system or kind of your own creation that's not necessarily based on a specific set of rules like Caltrop Core. So whenever you're making a new game, do you start with the system and do you spend a lot of time thinking about that? Or is it more You think about what you want to happen, and then you find ways to kind of weave mechanics into the thing that you're creating. It's both, honestly. And my approach to this is something like the approach of the LARP writers in my circle when they're thinking about writing a LARP. Often I get asked by people who primarily play TTRPGs, what do the mechanics of a LARP look like? And the answer is always, it's different for every game. It's a bespoke system for every game. And sometimes you get little commonalities. The game that is a council of nine people who have pairs of diametrically opposed positions on these political issues is a very popular one, and that one gets reskinned sometimes. But very often, you either start with the story that you want to tell and then try to come up with a mechanical system for that, or you have a mechanical idea and you put a story over it. In my case, for writing my micro RPGs, so far, I often get inspiration from reading an SRD. I sometimes joke that I've never met an SRD that I couldn't break apart and put back together some other way. So I think about different types of stories that I could tell with a system if I changed a system in a certain way. And then sometimes I just connect that up with an existing idea that had been floating around in the back of my mind for a while. I have a couple of those sort of floating ideas at the moment. One of them is about the experience of going on a road trip if everybody had some sort of paranormal powers. (laughs) I haven't figured out which system to put that into yet, but I'm sure I'll find one at some point. Interesting. Have you heard of Long Haul 1983? I have heard of it. I have not yet read it. I take it I should. I mean, it's kind of like the inverse of what you're talking about. My friend Fiona, she runs a podcast called What Am I Rolling, where she plays lots of different games. Each episode is a different system, or each like group of episodes, right? She might do two or three in the same system as part of her games. Especially during the pandemic, she did a lot of like solo games, and Long Haul 1983 is one of them, where you are driving a truck and then you keep encountering this person who it seems like has supernatural powers. Like they show up and they like do something to you or they like, I don't know, they're like hunting you almost. It's a lot creepier and more post-apocalyptic than what you're talking about. But I don't know, it gave me those vibes. But what you're talking about is more like Super Friends take San Diego or whatever. (laughs) But Something like that, yeah. It still is interesting. Like what would the conflicts be and like what would the goals be? And how would you make it interesting and fun 
and satisfying, I guess. You mentioned you read SRDs a lot to kind of get ideas, but is there any other kind of source of inspiration that seems like it keeps coming back and keeps giving you good ideas or has it just kind of been a mixed bag? Like you get the ideas from everywhere. Often I get ideas when I see somebody else execute an idea, a TV series or a movie or something like that. And I keep thinking, if only they had done this this other way. And so then I make it my mission to do things the way that I feel like they should have been done, trying to change it enough that it doesn't really bear the marks of its origin. And adding a lot of what have become my personal tropes. It turns out when you play in a whole bunch of LARPs and the writers of the games have to decide which people are playing which characters, people are not making their own characters, it turns out you find out very quickly what kinds of characters and arcs and storylines you do like and which ones you don't like. And so there's always going to be notes of personally succeeding, but in a way that doesn't permanently change the world, or notes of bittersweet longing, or notes of you have failed, but your memory will live on to inspire other people. And that's always also going to change the ideas that I pull from other media. I like it. I feel like that's a pretty common experience for anybody who watches shows or movies or consumes other kind of media. People tend to say, oh, they should have done it this way, or I didn't like that ending. It's an easy critique, but it is one step further to do what you're doing and say, you know what, I am going to make it how it should have been, and here's how. That's a lot of fun. I like that. I find that the inspiration I get comes from stuff that I watch and read as well, and I tend to like say, oh, that's a fun trope. I think people like that trope. I should make something that replicates it in a fun way that everyone can enjoy. Tell us about your most recent release, Untitled Moth Game. I'd love to know where you got the inspiration for that and what it's about and the creation process for a game like this. This one started as sort of a joke, and now it's possibly the game that I'm most proud of to date. Way early on, when I had only written my Caltrop Core games so far, I was toying with the idea of using playing cards or using tarot cards for my next game. And somebody said, oh, but I have 15 million Taroka decks. You should write a game for the Taroka deck. And I said, haha, that's so cute. Too bad that nobody would ever play it. And then a whole bunch of Curse of Strahd DMs came into my Twitter notifications going, I would play it. I have a Taroka deck. I finished running Curse of Strahd. I would love to have another use for this very niche deck. Yeah. So for people who are listening who aren't familiar, Taroka deck, it comes from Curse of Strahd, right? It's part of the game. Right. And the way that it's used in that game, I have always found a little unsatisfying because they went to the trouble of coming up with this deck with all of these symbolic correspondences and their deep hidden meanings. And then the way that you actually use it is each one represents a place or a person, and the rest of it is just sort of left to go hang. So I looked at the deck some more, and I thought I could do something with all of this flavor, all this symbolism that just never actually gets used when somebody runs Curse of Strahd. And then the untitled moth game part of it 
came out of the fact that I was writing it as a present for my friend Cassie Mothwin, who has all sorts of moth-related symbolism everywhere. And the basic premise of it came from basically me looking at, all right, Cassie Moth, her real-life partner, Josh, has the Twitter handle Chase the Ghost. Obviously, you're going to be chasing a ghost through this castle as a moth. And it grew from there. <laughs> was that just the name of the Google Doc 2 untitled moth game until you thought of a better title and then you just like, well, that's what it's called? No, actually, I knew from the very beginning it would be called Untitled Moth Game because I was joking about writing Untitled Fox Game for another friend of mine, Zio, actually, the head moderator of the Curse of Strahd modifications server and subreddit, whose profile picture is a fox. So Untitled Fox Game, Untitled Moth Game, it's Untitled Goose Game, except with all my friends instead. And very late on in playtesting, actually, my playtesters were coming to me saying, well, this seems to be a game that you really get out what you put in. So you have to come up with all of the story and everything like that. I would like a game where more of the story was given to you so you could feel like you were actually playing it rather than making your own fun. And so thought about it some more. Going to the general feel of Curse of Strahd, from which the Taroka deck itself was taken, you have the innocent in danger, you have the tyrant, you have the castle, but what is everybody else's story? And so the now very central mechanic of meeting other people and hearing the first part of their fairy tale, and then having to take on the responsibility of finishing their fairy tale for them, or breaking your promise to them in order to save yourself, came in right at the end, right there. I love it. And it is a very interesting twist, like you said, on kind of classic tropes. But that's interesting that people were saying they preferred you give them a more kind of an outline instead of them having to kind of come up with it themselves. But yeah, that's good feedback. And I'm glad that you were able to put it to good use. You were on a meeting earlier with Diversity Saves. So I'd love to chat a little bit more about that. I haven't heard a ton about it. So this is going to be new for me too. But yeah, tell us a little bit about Diversity Saves how the organization was founded, and then maybe a little bit about what the goals are and kind of how that's going. So a group of TTRPG creators of diverse backgrounds decided to come together and create an organization that would help promote other creators who might not get enough community support or enough visibility because of their background or their circumstances. And we decided, hey, we can basically fundraise from the community at large and then grant monetary grants to creators who would otherwise be financially struggling or not have the time or the resources to create all that they could create. So over the first 12 days of December, we partnered with an amazing Twitch streamer named Nekola the Druid to raise money for our very first sort of debut by having charity streams. And it was 12 days of different TTRPG systems. We ended up actually raising over $2,000. And so very soon now, we are going to start opening grant applications very soon for any 
BIPOC or LGBTQ organizations or creators to fund future projects and creative pursuits. The way that we have organized this is there will be a short application that's basically just tell us about yourself, tell us why you're so excited about what you're creating, and then if we like what we see, we'll get in touch with you to talk about sort of a more detailed look at what you're making, what you're hoping to do with it, and what kind of financial support you need. And we're still working out the details of exactly what we want to cover when we say TTRPG, because the borders of TTRPG are extremely fuzzy, but we want to be more inclusive rather than less and just fund some very awesome things that otherwise might not get the chance to exist. That's awesome. There's a website. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes so people can go check it out. I know it is still a work in progress. The website mentioned like there's details forthcoming. I'm assuming in the future, then people will have the ability to donate to the organization. And like you said, there will be a way for creators to apply for grants too. So that's awesome. And I think that's a really noble cause and something that I look forward to contributing to in the future. Thank you. Do you have any upcoming projects, games that you are planning on working on in the future or other things that you can tell us about? Yeah, actually, the next thing coming up is not a game at all. It is the World Builders Almanac. For a while now, I've been posting world building questions on Twitter that are sort of from the point of view of what do the people in your setting who are not the main characters think about life? What kind of lives do they lead? Where do they get their water from? What kind of snacks do they eat? How often do they get new clothes? All sorts of very everyday things that seem trivial, but are also the sorts of things that if you stop to think about them too hard can definitely lead you down a very deep rabbit hole of, (laughs) okay, well, since this exists, that means this other infrastructure has to exist to support it. And then if this one thing breaks, then this is the kind of disaster that might crop up and need a bunch of heroes to come solve it. So I posted 52 of them. And then I stopped and went, well, I can put this all together into a book. So I've been working on not only reposting them from the beginning, which is something that I am doing every Wednesday at about 2.15 p.m. Pacific time, a new world building question pops up that is basically a rerun of one of the older questions. But I've also been expanding the questions and coming up with historical examples. Here's how the ancient Romans solved this problem. Here's what Ming Dynasty China was doing in this area. Give you some more ideas. Yeah, some concrete real-life examples that you can yeah, kind of build exactly. up. I like that. And then each prompt also comes with a bunch of quest hooks that you can lift up and put straight into whatever campaign you're running. The sample page that is publicly out there already is about the water supply. And if I ask any DM about where does the water come from? Well, one of the very obvious answers is, well, they have a well. Okay, sure, they have a well. But have you considered aqueducts? Have you considered 
houses with roofs that slope down to funnel rainwater into a central atrium with a cistern underground. Have you considered some magical creature has made its nest in the town's water supply, and now every time somebody turns on the faucet, little slimy eggs are dropping out instead of water. I'm sure there's a party of adventurers somewhere who would love to take care of that. So going through and doing this for all 52 prompts has been quite an effort, but I am hoping to publish that sometime in late March of this year, which is 2023. So that should be coming out soon then, within the next few weeks you'll be posting it and when it comes out i'll make sure to retweet it and that kind of thing so people can see it but also i suggest that they follow you so they can keep up what are your parting words wisdom advice encouragement to dms and gms out there and then i'd also like to hear from a game designer's perspective what advice you would give to people who have thought about trying to write their own games but just haven't given it a shot yet or maybe who have started and are stuck the people who are a little bit earlier in the process than you and what you might tell them to give them a boost. My advice for these two groups is diametrically opposed. For DMs, I would say, don't worry about anybody's opinion of what you're doing except your players. Do what your table enjoys. Don't compare yourself to any other DMs out there, celebrity or not. This sounds like the sort of thing that is easy to say and really hard to do, but I also want to add, don't just follow the advice of any and every how to DM better article you find out there, because those article writers try very hard to make their advice applicable to all tables, (laughs) but they're not going to be able to succeed. It is perfectly fine for you to read a very well thought out article and think to yourself, this person really knows what they're talking about. They have all the math to back it up. I'm just going to ignore all of it and focus on what my players like. I think that's very fair. And uh, in that same vein, you should listen to podcasts that give you DM (laughs) advice and then decide which advice you should take or not. (laughs) Just had to put it in there. But yeah, I agree uh, 100%. What works at one person's table is not going to work at another's. No two tables are the same. And it is a smart DM that focuses on what their players like, because ultimately that's what you're playing for. Unless you're an actual play and you're trying to play for an audience and keep them interested. And for any budding game designers, care very much about what everybody else says about your game and your mechanics. Get as much feedback as you possibly can. Absolutely get playtesters. They will find all of the things that you have never even thought of. They will ask questions about things you weren't even sure were unclear and read what other designers have said in order to not make their mistakes. You can still be very skeptical about what they say works, but absolutely believe the things that they say have not worked for them. I like it. Now I know who I'm going to hit up when I have questions. I'll have to ask you and make sure that I'm not making the same mistakes you have (laughs) for my next projects. 
and everybody else can too. And speaking of asking you for advice, where can people find you, Kaya? Where can they find your work? And how can they get in touch if they have some game design or Curse of Strahd or questions about the games you have written? The best way to reach me for now is on Twitter at mirror underscore lock. I am actually hoping to get my personal website up by the time that this airs. And that will also be at mirror-lock.com. You can find all of my games and my forthcoming World Builders Almanac at mirror-lock.itch.io. And everybody is welcome to send me questions or request advice at any time. Awesome. Yes, I know I will be. And uh, I said this on Twitter a few weeks ago now, but I think your itch page is really cool. And it gave me a lot of ideas on what I should do with the Fireball Forge page, which is a white page with one link right now and needs a lot of work. So thank you for that nudge in the right direction as well. But Kai, it's been a ton of fun chatting with you. I've really liked looking through your games and the fun ideas you've got. We didn't even get to talk about two-thirds of the games that you've written that are on that itch page that I think could take more episodes if we wanted to. But a lot of fun ideas, a lot of cool games, and a lot of inspiration for other people if they're looking for ideas or just want to try some new fun games out and are looking for a good time. So appreciate your time, and I appreciate very much your insight, and I hope that you have an awesome 2023, and I can't wait to check out this World Builders Almanac. I know there's a lot of questions in there that I should be asking myself that I haven't yet, so I'm excited to see it. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Corey, the DM of Girls Who Don't D&D, an actual play show based in Australia with brand new players and some unique twists on the genre like fan voice acting as part of the episodes. The ranches are what we're there for. Uh, my world's built on ranches, and every time I think I can't get any weirder, another strange angle comes out. To hear more of Corey's philosophy on running games, some of the bumps in the road he's experienced, and the inspiration he got from other shows which led to him deciding to create Girls Who Don't D&D, tune in next week. Quick reminder here to check out Diversity Saves if you've got a second, to see what they're all about, and to find a way to support them if you can. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with friends and family who play TTRPGs too. New reviews will be read at the end of episodes as a thank you. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for the help editing and producing this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by my buddy Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And... As always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.